Welcome back. I'm Vince Neitz, the Chief Data Scientist and a partner here at Cordero. And with me, as always, is Jason Goth, our Chief Technology Officer and also a partner. We get technology leaders together to discuss what's happening in our world. Our discussions are fun, lighthearted, and, well, frankly, opinionated. Hopefully, it gives you a sense of what matters, what to pay attention to, and what to ignore. Today, we're going to talk about blockchain again. This is part two. If you didn't check out the last one, we, we had a great interview with Ben Rhodes out in Silicon Valley. I mean, look, the headline is that people are excited. This is a big deal. People are, people are really into blockchain and Bitcoin and Ethereum and all of the other cryptocurrencies. 74% of tech-savvy execs believe it's going to be a huge business potential for them. We're talking about billions of dollars have been spent already. Just in 2021, for example, $6.6 .6 billion have been spent here. So we need to go deeper. <laughs> I think last time was great. We heard a bit about some of that excitement, but I want to understand where does that really get us? Is this solution going to be able to realize all of that value? Does it really solve the problems that we heard some about last time? And are there problems that executives should be aware of that aren't being discussed deeply? Unfortunately, it's going to be like a five-hour episode, I think, Jason. What do you think? Well, we'll have to keep it at a little bit <laughs> higher level. Than, uh, <laughs> uh, but you know, I think a big point is like what are some of the – you hear about all the hype and the excitement, but what are some of the potential pitfalls is something that – is rarely talked about. Yeah, and I see our producer over here, Sarah, glaring at me. I can't go five hours, apparently. What do you think, Sarah? Can we do it? No? I trust you. Or we'll edit. <laughs> or we'll edit. Or uh, we'll famous edit. last words of any good producer here. Um, okay. Well, I wanna, I'm going to start in a little bit of a unique place, maybe not where you thought I would. But I want to talk about just Bitcoin as a representative of, of sort of the best case scenario in some sense of, of a really cool, interesting thing people are excited about, obviously, a lot of money being spent here. And, and then sort of devolve that back into the more primitive, what's behind it, what's leading there. And in my headline here is that Bitcoin or any, any other cryptocurrency, it doesn't really matter which one, is probably not what you think it is, at least not what most people think it is. It's really a fundamental change. All of blockchain, all of crypto, it's a fundamental change to the way that we work. And, you know, we heard you, Jason, talk about last time on the previous episode that, that, it, that exactly this, it's not an incremental change, but rather a paradigm shift. I'm curious, like, you've, you talked a little bit about it, maybe just talk more about it. Like, what historically has happened during these paradigm shifts with technology and what do we need to be paying attention to today in particular? Well, yeah, I think that they happen, right? Uh, you know, if you think about the uh, the initial computer implementations were all mainframe, they were all centralized. And as, you know, the first big paradigm shift would be, you know, to a more of a decentralized architecture, right? And decentralized computing. And when people first did that, well, it was very exciting. You know, I don't have to wait for months for the computer to be installed, and I don't have to wait for days for some operator to run the program that I wrote and several days later to, for me to get the results, I can just install this thing right here on my desk and do what I want. But that's led to a lot of problems as well. Now, all of a sudden, you know, data was in different places. We didn't know how to uh, combine it. You know, there were security problems and theft problems. And, mm -hmm. and so there's been, you know, a shift to a more kind of client server and, you know, now to more cloud, which is somewhat in a lot of ways moving back to a more of a mainframe uh, type uh, environment. But no, when, when these paradigm shifts happened, 
there's always the unknown, you know, it's the unknown unknowns, right? That, yeah. uh, to Protect- quote a right, vice yeah. president, um, that, uh, that really gets you. And I think the other thing that you mentioned to me, uh, prepping for this is, you know, the, the old best practices are no longer the best ideas. Right. That's very often the case, right? That when uh, a new technology or a new approach to solving something comes along, the first thing people do is try to apply existing patterns and best practices. And almost without fail, those turn out to be the, the exact wrong way to do it on, <laughs> on a new paradigm. And I think that you've seen a lot of that in the uh, blockchain slash crypto world. So what a better place than people's hard-earned cash than to go experiment, right? Maybe not. But to understand again, back to the block, to the Bitcoin specifically, I want to I want to just digress for one second, and I'll and I'll try and be brief here. So forgive me. I want to talk about like what is money because I just want to make sure that we're all on the same page of this this concept of money. It's you know it's funny. I have I have some little ones at home, of course, and you know they ask me like, well, what is this piece of paper you just handed me, Dad, to buy some ice cream? And I'm like, oh, that's that's just money. And like, what is what is money? Like, why? <laughs> and it took about two questions in for me to be like, huh. What is money? I think it's really well stated by Felix Martin. He's, he's the author, by the way, of a great book I like. It's called Money, the Unauthorized Biography. He describes it as a social technology. In other words, it's a language to communicate a, the very abstract idea of trust. And he goes on to start articulate three elements of that, which is about, you know, you have to have this idea of an account, something that you can have the money in, and what does that look like? So you have debits and credits effectively. It allows you to, to exchange that with people. That's a big deal. And that last one in particular, that the, the idea that you can have these debt obligations transferred to a new person becomes critical long-term. Otherwise, it's just, you know, it doesn't work. <laughs> money doesn't exist in that world because it's just trust between two people and that's not really money. And I think if you look at the history of money, we've seen it go through these paradigm shifts, really. I mean, the early, early stuff looks like beads and feathers and shells or even stone wheels. And the reason I bring all that up is that as we continue to move through this evolution, we, we're going to see a couple of themes that I think crypto is trying to address and blockchain more broadly is trying to address. And I think some of it makes sense and some of it might be questionable. And then I want to go into really the deep technology behind it as to why that does or doesn't make sense. Seem reasonable? It does. And I would, I would say that it even extends a little bit further. You know, people, the immediate thought when people talk about blockchain and, and is cryptocurrency, is Bitcoin mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. those type of things. But, you know, the real what I think a lot of the promise or, or excitement that you get out of, you know, folks in Silicon Valley and, and others is really the idea of, of smart contracts, mm-hmm. right? Which like it, you know, and a physical contract really is also the same thing, right? It's, you know, we have a contract, we agree on the terms and conditions, we sign it and we say, yes, like we're going to abide by that contract. That's that trust. Right? And, sense, right. But it, it uh, uh, requires us to abide by that. And so the, the challenge or, or I guess the paradigm shift uh, for a lot of blockchain or, or the uh, smart contract technology is, well, we encode that contract in code, mm-hmm. right? Um, you know, we talk about like there's no authority. There's no authority behind the issue of the currency. There's no authority behind now the, you know, the, the issue or the, the governance of, of the contract, but there really is, right? And, and, and it's all of the, uh, participants in the network, mm-hmm. right? And so you you exchange like the government saying that this is the current value for 
what 6,000 miners on the internet say the value is, right? And right. Uh, you may disagree with them, but in terms of a smart contract, it's really the code that then is the final arbiter. So if I, if I were to put some contract that says, when this happens, I'm going to send this money out. Like if there's an error in that code, you know, that's, you know, in a lot of ways too bad. Right. Where, whereas, <laughs> you know, in, whereas, you know, in a, in an actual physical paper contract, you know, we, we have a court system to arbitrate that. And so like, I guess where I'm going with that is like, uh, Bitcoin and other currencies promise to get rid of the fiat, uh, aspect of governments issuing money. There's a similar problem with the smart contracts in that they, they get rid of like the court necessary to arbitrate disputes and relies solely on the code to arbitrate disputes. The problem with that is like all code has bugs. Sure. And then, and you know, it becomes, it's, it's one of the bigger arguments right now as well. Sorry if that was a bug that, you know, it may not be of what you intended to write, but it is what you wrote. Right. And uh, that makes this whole thing a little bit different than the typical. And when I talk about paradigm shift, that's a good example of one is, you know, in, in software development, we, we love these agile and lean concepts, you know, build, measure, learn. I like to refer to that in blockchain as build, measure, lose, because you, you do something, you try experiment well, and you lose all your money. You know, it's just those, those paradigms don't work. You have to treat it more like a, I'm launching a rocket to Mars. And once it launches, I can't change anything. Right. Sure. And so sure. it's just a level of discipline and, engineering that it's a, it's a really interesting it's an interesting point to your that you're saying here which is like two things one back to the point like contracts are contracts and again there's some trust here like if i sign a contract with a company i'm trusting they're going to honor the contract in and you hopefully they do but sometimes they don't we might disagree with what that contract meant for example and there's always this system at least in the u.s where we just effectively can sue litigate right this contract we can go before another human or a panel of humans depending and ultimately decide like what's the resolution and your point here is the same thing sort of exists. The difference here is that computers know how to interpret that contract exactly one way. It's deterministic, and there's no room for ambiguity. It's entirely deterministic. One of my favorite quotes is, is Gavin Wood, who is one of the original authors of, of Ethereum. You know, he described it as writing these you know, distributed apps as not like creating a web widget in JavaScript. Rather, you should apply rigorous engineering and software development methodologies as you would in aerospace engineering or similarly unforgiving discipline. Once you launch your code, there's little you can do to fix any problems. End quote. That's not what a lot of people are used to doing. Sure. Right? Going back to going back to the, the NASA, when NASA built the guidance computer, they wrote a several thousand page specification, you know, with a lot of math what the guidance computer should do. And then they built simulators and hardware and computer simulators to make sure. And they spent 10 years testing that it did exactly that with several 20 or 30 test flights for each component before how, they launched it. And how did that work out for the, uh, the first? Moon? <laughs> yeah, you know, there were, there were definitely problems. So, so I think that's right. And like, because it's deterministic and because there's no human who can interpret what was clearly meant, it's, it's deterministic and interpreted by a machine, quite literally. 
there's no room for error. And this is real money. This is the money that you're right. transacting, or the, or the whatever value, whatever that happens to be. That's right. what you're transacting. And there's money in multiple ways, right? There's there's money in the sense that I've built something, some smart contract. It's got some cryptocurrency that it holds. I make an error, and someone allows someone to come and and take take the money. Mm-hmm. But I could just as easily like write some inefficient code and. Trust me, it's really easy to write inefficient code. Like it's almost, it's almost the natural state of the way humans do think about things. Mm-hmm. And almost all blockchains technologies charge you money, right? Of the currency of that, you know, ether, ether and Ethereum, et cetera, to execute those transactions. So if you have an error where you invoke something that runs slowly or runs a long time or iterates over a very long list mm-hmm. and it runs out, you know, you, you supply an amount of uh, cryptocurrency to, to execute that. If it runs out, well, sorry, you just lose it. Too bad, right. So you know, we, it's, you know, I'm paying someone, I'm paying someone. It's a little bit like uh, paying someone to go, you know, perform some work for you for a certain number of hours. You pay them by the hour, you've given them five hours worth of pay and if it gets to five hours and they're not finished, that's not their problem. It's yours. Well, you should have given me more budget. I'm done. Mm-hmm. And your job is unfinished mm-hmm. and you're out the money. Sure. Like that's not a, that's not a paradigm that most programmers are used to dealing in. Right. Sure. And to that point, I mean, I think that this is, this is starting to begin, starting to get into like the essence of, of the challenge that we're faced with then. I want to go back to a definition. It's actually by Andreas Antonopoulos. He's the author of The Internet of Money and Mastering Bitcoin, just to name a couple. He's actually a professor, a a teaching fellow, actually, on digital currencies. He describes Bitcoin specifically, but I think it applies more broadly, but Bitcoin specifically as a protocol, a network-centric platform for recording ownership and trust on a peer-to-peer basis. And that's obviously very intuitive and everybody knows what that means. So we're done for today. No, not exactly. <laughs> but I do want to That's wanna, a mouthful. <laughs> I want to back up and I want to I want to take that sort of bit by bit so that we can get to the points you're talking about here, which is like these contracts, which are based on Ethereum in that case, which is based off the blockchain, have all those characteristics. I think that's what's often overlooked. It's like how technologically does this actually manifest? Like what was the foundation on which these things were built? And so just to just to level set here. Again, Bitcoin is based on blockchains. I said, what is blockchain? Let me start there. What is blockchain, Jason? Just real quick, like, what does that even mean? Well, okay, this is going to go to hour five. But, uh, <laughs> no, I mean, you know, you hear people say it's a distributed ledger, right? Which, you know, what, what okay, is a ledger? what's a distributed yeah, ledger, exactly. right? It's yeah. a, you know, it's uh, not a good definition. <laughs> it, it, it's essentially a list of transactions, right? So like, uh, a, like a database? Like that's just a database. Sarah wants to pay Vincent $5. Okay. Right. That's it. You can think of that transaction as a proposition that is submitted to a bunch of people. Mm-hmm. So let's say that you want to pay Vincent, Sarah, you want to pay Vincent $5. And we've got 10 people in the room. And you t- announce to everyone, I want to pay Vincent $5. If enough of them agree, this is the consensus, uh, peer-to-peer consensus problem. Okay. You send that, you tell everyone that, right? And in this case, on the blockchain, you've got thousands of computers around the, the world, around the globe. Mm-hmm. 
uh, processing these transactions. You send them your intent. I want to pay Vincent $5 and enough of them agree. Right? And, and they're, that then, okay, it's, it's been recorded. Like that transaction has been recorded and it is part of history and cannot be changed. So it's sort of like a really bad yeah. version of Quicken, which yeah, is like, exactly. it's slow, it's it's distributed, which I guess is nice, but it's also immutable. And I can't go fix it if I fat finger, too right. bad, so sad, back to your previous point. Right, and so, the, the reason that blockchain comes around is those transactions, you know, you can think of them as rows in a, a spreadsheet where you say, you know, row, you know, column one is who wants to pay Mm-hmm. Column two is who they're going to pay. Column three is how much they're going to pay. Or you know, it could be that column could be a piece of code to run. And those things get recorded. In the, in the case of some of the more smart contract, you know, state machines like Ethereum, like that code gets executed and the results get stored on the blockchain. And those get grouped, those transactions or state changes get grouped into pages. Think of a okay. page in a spreadsheet. Mm-hmm. And then those pages get linked together. So the transactions get moved into blocks, blocks get linked together into one and giant Excel workbook, right? So that's where the name comes from. But it's a little bit, you know, people Chaining often... together those blocks, blocks sheets. And, okay. and it's a little bit, um, and this is why that, that description is very accurate, although very difficult to understand, <laughs> because it is a protocol and a peer-to-peer protocol, because it's not so much as a way to store something as it is a way to suggest actions to happen and have everyone agree on that that action did happen got it so that's super helpful and i guess like my question is to your point in some sense it's just like a giant spreadsheet this letter's just a giant spreadsheet shared across lots of people and so so that has a ton of problems that we're going to get into in just a second in essence you're trading the efficiency of having one person own a spreadsheet and just when sarah says she wants to give me five dollars just five dollars plus minus all good to this very distributed, decentralized mechanism. You're trading the efficiency for decentralization in some sense. Why Why would you want that? Like, Why, why are people saying, hey, I want a system that's less yeah. efficient and doesn't scale well for the simple sake of decentralization? Like, what's going on there? Right, well, the idea is that, you know, whoever controls the spreadsheet controls the world, right? You know, your bank uh, has a list of the accounts. They know who has what. You know, if they were to go away, you know, where's all your money? Mm-hmm. But more importantly, like they control everything. They can take transaction fees. You know, the idea is like, well, if we have, if we get the bank Mm -hmm. out of the way and Mm -hmm. we just all agree, we have all the the participants agree that that's what happened. We don't need the bank to record that that's what happened. We can all together Mm -hmm. agree and and record it. But, and that, that relies on, that's the part of the protocol part in that description is there are protocols to, to manage that consensus and, you know, distributed consensus, like let's all agree on what happened, mm-hmm. is an incredibly hard problem, right? Uh, it gets described sometimes as, you know, uh, Byzantine fault tolerance. <laughs> and the reason it's referred to that is this is a problem that went back to the Byzantine Empire, right? How mm-hmm. could we send out a message to the Byzantine generals uh, from the, of the empire and have them get it and all agree that they all got it and that it hadn't been changed? Mm-hmm. So we've been trying to solve this problem for 2000 years almost. And you know, the blockchain protocols are an implementation or, or, or implementations of several different protocols to try and solve that Byzantine general's consensus problem. 
but they do it for thousands of generals, let's say, to, sure. so to speak. And mm-hmm. and I guess like so that that makes sense. And I think when you hear people talk about this, you know, there there is this natural distrust of these centralized organizations, and, and maybe for good reason. If we go back again, back to the history of money, we went from physical objects to effectively pressed or stamped precious metals, whether it be silver or gold or whatever happened to be that empire's that sovereignty's currency. And, and we did see some things that were maybe a little sketchy, right? People always trying to find new ways to make money. Maybe they take a coin and they shave off the edge of the coin and they take all those little scraps and they remelt them and restamp them and then they have some more money for free. So I, I understand that. And I think when that's happened in the past, something something similar is that, no, we don't have the same technology, but other mechanisms to sort of remove the control from the sovereignty have taken place. And in the case of the village described, we see in Europe, across Europe, effectively large vendors would say, hey, we're going to have our own currency and we'll write you an IOU and you can transfer that to the people and they can redeem that here and you sell goods and you can buy goods with those things. We've always seen in the past when those things have happened, the sovereignty didn't like it, frankly. <laughs> they weren't a fan and they, and they often sort of intervened and prevented that from happening. We're seeing a little bit of that now, certainly. I mean, China, for example, has, has made it illegal and China's pretty serious when they say things are illegal. They, they kind of mean it. Um, even in the U.S., if you think about this idea that all of the traditional banking institutions are saying, hey, we need to move it in the space, and all therefore all the banking regulations apply, like KYC, you know your customer, identity resolution, who you're transferring to, you're not laundering, so on and so forth, are taking place. The question, I guess, for you is from a technological standpoint, is that the direction that was intended, do you think, from when they were designing these things? Again, it, is it worth it, said differently, it, imagine a world in which the governments and sovereign nations are going to put some restrictions so they have some oversight and some regulatory abilities. Is it worth it then to have this decentralized peer-to-peer network that's very expensive, this distributed letter that's hard to maintain, all of the expenses associated? Does that still make sense? Is that, or is that a critical element from your perspective? Well, I'd say the designers of it certainly didn't want that, right? Any type of uh, centralized uh, oversight or community, and they really rely on the community. And it's a double-edged sword in terms of, well, that's the, the benefit of it, mm-hmm. right? But there are also downsides of it. Well, right? we talked about one yeah. of them, right? Which is like, if you make a mistake, too bad, so sad. There's nobody to arbitrate this. Yeah. Right? Well, and even more complicated than that, you know, mm-hmm. we use the, the DAO hack as a, as a good example. So, What's the DAO? Just real quick. Uh, sure. What's the hack? So the DAO hack is a, is a very famous organization, a smart contract that was loaded onto Ethereum by a, a startup, and they went to raise money. Uh, I believe, what more technically not at the business side, but I believe it was uh, to to generate like a smart lock technology for like VRBO, where you know you could get it and you could rent something, and you'd be given you know a credential to essentially get into the the property. And they raised a ton of money. But there was a bug in the DAO contract, and someone went and stole, I think it was you know three or, or four million dollars uh, worth of ether out of it. Well, you know that got everyone pretty upset, <laughs> obviously that it invested, and so there became this big argument. Well, what do we do about it? And there were really three camps. So the first camp was like, well, the code is the ultimate arbiter. That's what the code allowed you to do. So it's not illegal. And that would be the person who took the money's position. And they've made that very clear. Like, you know, you can't come after me. I followed the rules of the contract. The fact that you published code that you didn't fully test and had some behavior that you didn't expect is not my problem. Sure. Two is 
there was the idea of a, what, what's called a soft fork in that the, you know, the, essentially the miners the, would put in a switch that said, like, well, that person, the account that took that money can never spend it. And the third was like a hard fork, which is basically rollback. Like, we're going to actually roll, undo that transaction on the block, on, mm-hmm. on the Ethereum blockchain. Mm-hmm. And um, the challenge is, well, well, which one do you do? Well, the answer is whichever one the majority of the miners on the network, you know, choose. so you don't have an appeal to a governing body. You have an appeal to 6,000 random people on the internet, right? That uh, you have no idea who they are. <laughs> and they're just like a 160 bit or 160 you know, bit address on the internet. And whichever one the miners adopt, that's the rule. And what they you know, eventually did, and that was, was the hard fork. But um, so you know, want, a I'm lot of people, if you, and that's part of the challenge, like if you don't agree, you know, th- there's the old joke, I think, I don't remember, I think it was Benjamin Franklin, I'm not sure, said democracy shouldn't be uh, two wolves and a sheep arguing over what's for dinner. And that's, but that's essentially what the, the blockchain is, right? When, when the majority of the nodes agree that this is what we're going to go do, then that becomes what is done. And you don't have any real recourse to it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for, I would say the, you know, crypto anarchist and hobbyists and, and everyone else on the internet using it, that's great. But if you're going to run your business on it, you really can't put your business at the risk of what a lot of unknown miners are going to go do. Yeah, I'm going to pause real quick. One second. Which is like, I want to I make this point really clear and make sure our listeners heard you. What's fascinating about the blockchain is that it's decentralized and there's no central authority. But to be clear, there is still some group of people who controls the fate of whatever you've put on it. Is that right? That's right. Well, how, do, how, do, how does that thing, uh, the blockchain evolve? Like, How do new features get added? How do new things change? How do problems get addressed? Well, it happens when a majority of the people running the network decide that that's what they're going to do. Sure. Right? And you know, there, there's often a, a talk about the merge, for example. Right? Mm-hmm. This is an Ethereum concept as well, which is Ethereum uses an algorithm called proof of work. Well, hold on. Before you get there, sure. there's one question. Let me ask you real quick, which is, which you're going to get there anyway. But let me just set up the question right, which is, how how do you decide which six thousand people you could in roughly six thousand people to have to decide you know, the majority of them have to decide how, who decides who those six thousand people are? How does that actually happen in the in the mechanism? Yeah, that's that's a that's a really difficult. And you know, there are two, largely speaking, two ways that that happens. Uh, one is with a proof of work. Uh, the way that works is if you and I and Sarah uh, all get, we're the miners, we all receive a transaction. We're going to put it on the blockchain. We essentially have to play a little math game. It's like guess a number between one and two to the 256, right? Which is an incredibly large number. (laughs) It's very hard to do. You guess the right number. You have created the block. Now, what happens is everyone else then starts building transactions or building new blocks based on that block. So when enough people agree that that block is the right one, that becomes the history. The way that it works is essentially what is the longest chain. So if if there's if there's a block A out there, you present block B, Sarah, you present block C. The network kind of waits, and then if someone else provides a block D on top of yours, Vincent, then we decide. Well, that's the longest chain. 
that's the way we're going to go. And so over and that's the consensus. Yeah. Over a yeah, consensus. Mechanism. So over a period of, of, you know, hours or days, it, it settles down into this is the longest uh, chain. So this is, this is the consensus that we've all reached as true. And, and in that math problem, just to be clear, that math problem, that's the cryptographic part that everybody talks about. Right. This is this, to your point, it's a massive number that you have to two to the 256. is just, I mean, it's, it's so big. I, it's, I could even know how to articulate it, articulate it for our listeners, but it's bigger than any number you could possibly. More about. than the number of atoms in the universe for <laughs> sure. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And so by design, this is a hard problem. Like right. that's the design. That's yeah, the and that's the, that's also the reason that for all the energy consumption, right? Is you've got to sit there and churn through a lot of, a lot of random numbers, which is not an easy problem for computers to do. It's a very energy consumptive problem. And so this is like the big thing you see Elon Musk talking about. Hey, I'm I'm all in on crypto, and then he's like, next, then maybe I'm not because it's terrible for the <laughs> right. environment. That's the that's what they're trying to that, solve. They're saying this this mechanism by which we agree this is what's happened. We guarantee it is too expensive. It's very expensive. Now there is a. A second alternative, what's okay. called proof of stake, which is, again, let's assume that you, Vincent, me, and our lovely producer, Sarah, decide to uh, have a network. We can all provide stake, which basically means we pay money. Like, we will pay $500 in, mm -hmm. and the transactions, uh, the network will route the transactions to us. Like, well, you've put up $500, so you must be pretty trustworthy. I'll let you do the next one. Mm -hmm. And we all will agree that that's the truth. Sarah, you've put up $500. I'll let you do the next block and we'll all agree. That's the, the truth. Jason has put up $1. We don't trust him at all. Mm -hmm. Right. So we're not going to let him uh, do the block. So that's the, the proof of stake approach, which is a lot less energy uh, consumptive, but it's still, I think it actually makes the problem a little worse in that well instead of like randomly some of these thousands of people on the internet are going to randomly decide mm -hmm. right what the, the history is well now it's the people with the most money in the network so essentially you're uh, you're creating a new authority with whoever you know can put the most money into the network that subset of, of miners becomes the de facto authority and so back to the original question which is like how do those 6,000 people get decided? It sounds like there's two answers independent of it's proof of work or proof of stake. Right. In the proof of work case, it's effectively, not literally, but effectively, probabilistically, I'll put it that way, probabilistically, whoever has the most compute. Correct. And in the second case where it's proof of stake, it's effectively who has the most money to put into it. And so in both cases, it sounds like the big players are still going to win. Well, I would argue, yes, uh, the big players are they're going to win. You know, I, you, you mentioned that stat at the beginning, something like $6 billion this year have gone into uh, crypto uh, startups or blockchain startups, Web3.0 startups, whatever we want to mm -hmm. call them, with, with a lot of big players, BlackRock, Andreessen Horowitz, and people that are very smart and know how to make money. Sure. And I, I can guarantee you Andreessen Horowitz and BlackRock, BlackRock are not investing billions of dollars in this technology because they think it's going to give it all back to the people. I think they re recognize like they'll, you know, yes, it's going to take power away from Facebook or Twitter or the web 2.0 companies. And it's just going to give it to a different company, whoever the web 3.0 ones are. Okay. And so, you know, they want to be the next Twitter, the next Facebook, the next uh, YouTube or, or Google. It's they're not investing in this out of the goodness of their heart to altruistically get rid of any type of 
big government or big corporation model and give you know, all the power back to the people. Yeah, I mean, it, it comes back to what we talked about before, which is, you know, in some perfect world, I suppose, any central authority, if perfectly altruistic and, and brilliant, would do the right thing. There's still a human component to this solution, even though it's peer-to-peer, even though it's decentralized, even though it has all these other characteristics, there's still a human component. And I think that's often overlooked, and I think one of the really fascinating things is there. this is still not, I wouldn't call it mainstream yet, so it's still pretty early on in the in the world of blockchain, and even in Bitcoin, it's been around for a while. It's a subculture, and, and that subculture has fractions among it. That is, they don't even all agree internally. Right. And, and what, well, what you see happening then is like, well, I don't agree with the rules of this network. I'm going to go create my own. It's a fairly low barrier to entry, right? I need to get a few servers and get going. And so there, there's not really an incentive to come together and solve some of the really harder challenges. Mm-hmm. Right? Like what, how do we handle disputes? Sure. Right. Well, the, the mechanism for handling disputes today is everyone takes their toys and goes home. Sure. And I think like, the second thing I want to talk about here is is really like to that point of entry cost. So to, to your point today, it's pretty easy to start a new thing. How easy is it to actually get started with, let's say a company, a CEO says, you know what, we need to, we need to figure out this blockchain. We need to do our own smart contracts on Ethereum. We need to do whatever. How hard is that today? And like what happens if, let's say this actually is successful. Let's say this trend turns into a real movement. Like, what does that look like over time? Because I think you spent you spent a few hours, from what I can tell, yeah. uh, on a weekend here recently, actually creating and setting up from the ground up. So, so let's talk about that. Yeah, and I'd say it's easy to get going, right? You can have something up and running and some contract you wrote deployed to it in a day, but it's hard to do it well and safely, right? And that is, yeah. you know, one of the biggest issues I have with the technology in or not issues, but the biggest warnings I, I give to customers doing it is like these things are very, very difficult to write and understand. And even very, very simple hello world contracts mm-hmm. are very, very difficult. And you need to have lots of people who pay you pay lots of money, review them for vulnerabilities and issues and problems. And that doesn't even guess, guarantee that, you know, you will find them. And in fact, there, you know, it, there are so many like sneaky little things in some of these blockchain languages and, and, and protocols and What's uh, this smart contracts. You were me about? Yeah. Yeah. So the underhanded solidity contest was, is a really fun, I think is, you know, it's a contest and you, you can go out to Google underhanded, underhanded solidity. Um, solidity is the, the programming language for Ethereum and people go right very seemingly simple, innocuous little smart contracts. Just like, let's everybody put in one ether and whoever, you know, we'll have a lottery, whoever gets, whoever's the fifth person to put it in, will get four of the ether and we'll keep one, right? It's a simple lottery or, or something like that. Incredibly simple, less than a hundred lines of code contracts. And, you know, people scour them and look at them and it's like, okay, yeah, that's, that's good. There's no issue there. That's the point of the, the contest is there are issues, right? And, and so, you know, there's so many funny ways not to, you know, I don't know, we don't want to get too technical here, but like in, you know, in some of these, in some of these platforms, like, uh, like what's 256 plus one, right? It's zero, right? In some of these platforms, because that, you know, if it's an eight bit integer and sure. and so people don't think about that. And then all of a sudden, 
thing breaks. The whole thing breaks. Or even words like, I want to give you, you know, one Bitcoin and I subtract two from that and think I'm giving, you know, negative one. I'm actually giving you 255, right, Bitcoin. And so there are a lot of race conditions, reentrancy problems. Let's say that, you know, the, a lot of the, the hacks are reentrancy problems and mm -hmm. distributed state problems. Let's say that I, you know, I want to send you one Bitcoin and then I'm going to, or, or, or one crypto token, and then I'm going to decrement your balance. Mm -hmm. Well, what I'm sending to is an address, right? And that address could be another program. It could be a pro person. It could be a program. You don't know mm -hmm. that program could then ask you to do it again. So it'd send you another one. And so if it's waiting, for, you know, and then it would ask you to do it again, you'd send you another one and all, you know, until it runs out and then it starts decrementing your balance and you're like, Oh, wait a minute. What's going on? Yeah. What's <laughs> going on? You know, these are like race conditions, reentrancy, distributed state management. These are, you know, underflow, overflow, floating point errors. These are like all really hard problems for, for people to understand even really good talented programmers. Mm -hmm. And like understanding them is one thing, but it's also recognizing them. Like you know, the code can look very, very solid, very simple. Like I don't see any problems. You just didn't recognize some of the, you know, some of the problems. And that's how a lot of these, you know, vulnerabilities get published. Um, because again, like, unlike, you know, if you build code in a website, now build some code, I have a website, have some code, it's going to write in a database. Like no one sees that. Sure. Right. What, what you're doing with the blockchain or, or with smart contracts is you're putting out code. Not only are you putting out the code and the, the running code and the state of all the variables and this long-term storage and data out for the whole world to see. Right. And everybody has bugs and someone's going to find it. Well, I think that's the most interesting thing too, that we, we should probably talk about next and, that is that the way it's designed, the peer-to-peer -peer aspect of it, and there's no central repository. It means that everybody, every miner, has a copy of everything. They have right. to by design. Yes. Right? So every transaction for all of time, to the beginning of that of that coin, for example, those smart contracts, to the beginning of time, lives on everybody's machine. How how big is that file today? <laughs> well, it you know, it, it it's growing. I yeah, I think that, you know, there are different ones but the the bitcoin blockchain is something around getting close to 400 gig so that's so it's you know, if you think a movie is a gigabyte it's like having 400 movies on your hard drive and this is for something that's still very early that has not been adopted by adopted by the masses right. and so back to the point of increasingly let's say this gets to mainstream adoption increasingly it, it sort of by definition must leave you know my laptop and your laptop i don't have, my laptop's not gonna hold that you know, and imagine that it's 10, 20, 100 times the size because, again, it's the whole history forever and it's not going to get smaller. It gets to a place where it really has to be a few number of people who are, who are benefiting financially, no doubt, from owning that entire system. And so a lot of that sort of moves back to some centralized authority in some sense, not literally, but conceptually at minimum, maybe literally at some point. Um, and, and I guess like the, the challenge with that in my mind is that it again goes back to this question that I, it's, it's a rhetorical question, but like, was it designed to do that? Yeah. <laughs> well, in, in like, that case, it, yeah, the answer is yes, it was designed for everyone to have, uh, you know, 
all the data all the time. There, there are some things, you know, in, in various different implementations that try to limit that and, you know, take history that is uh, things that can't, you know, are out of date and archive them off. And, you know, there's kind of some multi-level aggregate summary protocols. And so there, there are some things to try to address that size, but it is going to continue to grow and it is going, and that is the point of a peer-to-peer network is that everyone has all the, all the data all the time. Um, the other- because, you know, here, you know, one of the, like I, and I don't, don't hear me say that this would happen, but like, what if everyone turned off their computer one day? Well, then it'd be gone. Right. Right. Uh, because there's no, you know, unless someone, obviously, unless someone had backed it up and, and restored it, but you're, you're relying on the whole network, not to collude against you in some sense. Exactly. Or to all be, you know, doing intelligent things. And well, the other thing the, about the, 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 the go the, ahead. The other thing about owning, so the other thing we hear a lot about is, is both privacy and people own their own data. And I just want to like address those real quick. Cause now we're on exactly this topic, which is, Hey, one of the cool things you can do with blockchain is everybody can their own, own their own data. What I just heard you say is actually everybody sort of literally has a copy of that data who's part of that network. And, and how does that work? Yeah. Well, there's a difference between owning it and storing it. Okay. Good. Right. Dig and into that. What does that mean? Yeah. So, well, I may own the data. That doesn't necessarily mean it sits on my laptop. Mm-hmm. If it's uh, some sort of token, I have an account on one of the blockchains and that token it is in my account on one of the blockchains and every participant in the network has a copy of that record mm-hmm. that may say, yes, I own this thing, okay. but that you know, ownership is a little bit like trust, right? It's, it's not a technical concept, exactly. right? It's a, you know, the technical concept is like, where are the ones and zeros written? And they're, you know, on, on whoever has a, mm-hmm. has a note. Now you have clients, right? Just like there's a browser, your browser connects to a website, gets data. There are clients, wallets, essentially, mm-hmm. that connect to the different blockchain networks and get and show you your data. The, the challenge with, let's let's say, I think Ben last time mentioned, like, well, I want to own my healthcare records and I'll send them to who I want. Well, the problem with, you could do that today, right? You could have all your healthcare records and when you get a new doctor, you could email them to the doctor. The problem isn't that there isn't technology to do it and now suddenly the blockchain provides technology to do it. Problem is that the doctors don't want to give it to you. You don't ask for it. You don't want to keep track of it and you don't want to send it to somebody. Right. right? And so in that blockchain analogy, you would have to do that and you would have to upload a copy and then everyone would have to store in the network would have to store a copy of your records. Now it may be encrypted so that only the one person who wants to read it may be able to do it. Mm-hmm. And again, that leads to the scalability problem. Because right now we're storing tiny 100, 200, 300, 400 byte transactions. Exactly. Like what if we start, you know, well, like what if what if we start, you know, we say right now the, the, the blockchain is about the size of 400, you know, movies. Well, what if we start storing every movie on it and every video or picture that someone captures is going to become you know, large. And this is where, you know, most businesses, you know, again, we're talking mainly at business executives here, like they, you know, banks, others, they'll tend to start. This is the point where they realize like, well, maybe we need to start doing like a private blockchain, right? Like, which, you know, that to me, it's like, well, a private blockchain, you might as well just have your own database. Like well, if I'm going to own the blockchain and it's just <laughs> going to be me. Now there are consortiums, right? Like these 10 banks get together and own one. 
just for those banks transactions i think that might be that might be a place where there's probably a more reasonable path forward uh for some businesses that that point i mean that already exists right like i mean Sure, EDI, you yeah, know, I mean, exi- exactly. Yes. Like these things exist from banking on Swift, the Swift side. Swift, right. On, on the other one that sort of comes from your personal background in aviation is on the airline side. Right, on the dist- distribution with the GDSs, sure. Exactly. And so the question is like, are we actually solving a new problem if we start moving into that domain? And it sounds like, the, from what I can tell, the answer is no. No, it's just a, it's a more expensive way to do something we can do today with a lot of danger in terms of, you know, bugs. Now in, in that case, you may say like all the airlines get together. Like if there's an, you know, a problem in the code, they're not going to expose others problems in the code, but you know, and that's well, probably and true, that's, but it's, and that's sort of the point that I'm getting at is like this idea that the peer to peer enables all these new scenarios as we've discussed is, is not really true. We, we could do these things today. The problem is not the technology. The problem is the cost associated with doing the cheaper version of exactly this. How do you get every well, single mom cheap. and pop doctor's office, for example, independent practitioner's office to move to some paradigm to send some data to somewhere else? That's right. hard. That's and it, it's really not, it, it's not only a cost issue. And, and I'd say it's actually not a, a cost issue primarily. It's a control issue, mm-hmm. right? Like the hospitals want to be in control of the data. The banks want to be in control of data. So you're essentially, you know, I, I, I do this little uh, somewhat tongue-in-cheek uh, questionnaire for for businesses. Sometimes I'm like, how would you like to not control any data and make sure that you tell everyone else exactly what data you have? Mm-hmm. Now, they'll tell you what data they have, but that way you all have the exact same view of the data and none of you can get any strategic benefit of it. And if there's problems, you can't change it sound like a good idea and you know it, people invariably say no and i'm like oh well let's don't do blockchain then yeah. but um you know i think there's there, there are limit you know there are probably some good use cases in that consortium space sure. right the private space there's the same as a, a database why would you do that and you know some of the you know, cloud providers are offering that now you know amazon has the quantum ledger database and, and other things they're blockchain te- you know a, a lot of this sometimes is, is marketing, you know, you, we used to see this in cloud, right? We called it cloud washing, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Everything, like whatever you had, it was, you know, if you had a mail service, there's now a cloud mail service. If you had a, you know, uh, dog washing business, it was a cloud dog washing business, right? And, and you know, I think that a lot of solutions are getting whitewashed with, with blockchain uh, in, in the label. And th- they're probably using some of those technologies underneath, but in the end, they're the same kind of centralized mm-hmm. and, uh, solution as before and I think what those companies will find out is like well I'm paying a lot more well, money to do this than I would on traditional solutions and I'm having a lot harder time developing it because it's so much harder uh, and so I'm just going to go to these other tr- tried and true technologies. I mean in other words like back to your original opening which is this is a paradigm shift we're applying the old paradigm to the new technology that's supposed to be a paradigm shift and expecting some amazing results and in fact of course they're not amazing. They're, they're actually worse. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that my, one of my favorite analogies is something like, you know, saying that, again, cryptocurrency, Bitcoin, choose your favorite, doesn't matter. Saying that Bitcoin is, is a currency is a bit like saying the internet is just email. Like, yes, email is is a great advantageous thing that comes out of the internet, but actually it's just the most obvious first application. And I think what we're seeing a lot with the blockchain in general is that, it's a really interesting technology to solve a problem that we're not 
really sure which though. <laughs> and so people are sort of taking old problems saying, well, can I solve it better with this? And the answer so far is no. Is that accurate? I, w- I would say the answer is no. I mean, others, <laughs> would, others would disagree with that for sure. So I want to go back to then the, the other thing I was going to mention, which is the privacy piece. So again, everybody has a copy of every transaction that's ever happened. It seems like we don't have privacy, actually. Yeah, that's a, <laughs> I think that's, one again, one of those unknown unknowns that is surfacing. You know, you don't until, you know, we talked about last, uh, in the last episode about, you know, some type of bridge event, right? So mm-hmm. if I, if I have, a bunch of Bitcoin or uh, Dogecoin or, or whichever cryptocurrency, and then I use it to purchase something, you know, uh, a Tesla or you know, a fishing rod. I'm a big fisherman. I purchase fishing rod. Well, that company ships it to me. Like now your that address. I, that I fill out my name, address. They they know who I am. Your right? physical address can be tied back to your public wallet address. Right. And now, because I know your wallet address, I can go see every transaction you've taken forever, elsewhere. right? I know, and this is this is actually you know been, uh, I think a boon for some law enforcement agencies. You you've seen there's a lot of of articles in the press and where things that are, again because things never go away on on the blockchain. It's it's an immutable ledger, and so you know someone does something, they're able to to link you know bridge this person is that address and then they're able to go see all of their activities and and some were like big hacks and you know the fbi recently seized you know a lot of billions uh, of dollars yeah a lot yeah like was it 300 million or something like that i can't remember but um you know there was someone in in florida that was arrested for uh trafficking you know because again they were able to which you know so I, I think it's a good thing, right? We should arrest people for trafficking, but they were able to to, to track those payments for for trafficking people uh, to this person, you know, through a bridge event, and then you know, they they have a, a cryptographically one hundred percent secure way of saying yes, you did this, right? <laughs> and so, you know, but you, you think of it from a privacy perspective, you know, forget, you know, the big issue today would be you know, third party cookies, right? I go to a website, it drops a cookie. I go to Google, I, you know, let's say I go to YouTube or, or Twitter or whatever, it drops a cookie. I go to Google, I search for fishing rods. I come back, I go to that site and what it sees that cookie wants to show me fishing rods. That's, you know, a, a lot of the privacy issues that people are, are, are bothered with. Well, if we move everything, you know, everything to the blockchain, well, like, you know, people are going to see that I buy dog food. You know, if they know that, this is the dog food seller's public key because I buy dog from there. And this is Jason's public key because I had to send him some money. Like I can now see Jason's, all the purchases of Jason's dog food or medication or anything else. Salary, for example. Salary. Yeah. yeah. The other thing that's really interesting on that is if you then tie that back to the smart contract idea, which is that the contract says that, you know, if this happens, then this happens. Maybe that then is you receive a lot of money, for example, I can effectively predict when you might come into a bunch of money. I could see, not even predict, I could like literally see you came into a bunch of money yesterday, for example. And that could lead to a whole host of new spear phishing right. or other kinds of attacks on Or even regulatory. I mean, I think that, you know, there's, I don't know if this is law or proposed regulatory change or proposed and dropped. I'm not, I'm not uh, really up on it, but you know, the 
the idea that the the IRS was going to require banks to report transactions, you know, any anyone having a transaction of a certain size. Sure. Right. And you know, privacy experts were or privacy advocates were pretty upset about that. Rightly so. People customers were upset, privacy folks were upset. Well, in the blockchain regulation is not necessary, right? Like you can just they're gonna have a copy and they if they, they can see you know, every transaction. They see every transaction. See how, big wallet, how big the wallet is. Right. And then because of the KYC stuff that's applied via Coinbase and all the other out platforms where normal people would buy this stuff, they know exactly who you are. Exactly. Our, that bridge event was created when you made the wallet, in other words. Exactly. Yeah, there there are, you know, and again, it's just such a, a new technology. You know, what we've talked about, like, or the, some of the technical problems, like, you know, code best practices and, and um, potential hacks and scalability. And, you know, we've talked about now the, you know, privacy, there's also you know, some of the, we haven't even talked about some things like counterparty risks, right? Um, you know, it's just such a new space. And, you know, well, I understand like people want to get into a new space, right? And and that happens all all the time with every technology change. People, r- money rushes in to the new space. But like what I tend to remind our clients are is like, if you re- remember historically, most of those people lose, Right. Uh, you know, there are winners. Right. And you may be one, but it's, you know, statistically not likely. Yeah. You can win the lottery, too, I suppose. Yeah. Um, I think like this is sort of the natural place to end. Then, I mean, there's two more things we talk about, to your point, uh, including ethics. We didn't even get the ethics conversation. But really, you know, it's it's a fascinating space. I really do believe that it could be transformative. It, it absolutely is a paradigm shift in how we think about some of these things. I have yet to see the application that really takes advantage of that paradigm shift. And by the way, I, I personally believe if you look at other paradigm shifts like Uber, where of course where I spent some time, I can't imagine that the company that figures out this solution that really is disruptive is going to play nice with anybody. I just can't imagine them saying, oh, you know, if we take crypto, if that were the thing, which I don't think it is, at least not the way we've seen it so far, they would say, oh, well, I need to register as a bank. I'm going to go buy the regulations of a bank. I'm going to do all of that. I, I just don't see it happening. I think they're going to say, you know what? This is disruptive. This is amazing and powerful and forget the rest of you. Right. And you know, and my, what you want to call it skepticism or whatever, but uh, contrarianism, but, I, you know, <laughs> I'm not opposed to it. Like, you know, my, these, these uh, these are all warnings in terms of like let's you know, it's crawl walk run and I would advise crawling right now investigating but not and not bet the farm on it and waiting for some of these best practices to to get evolved and then and to your point if you do have a good use case for it then you'll be able to to take market share or or have a big innovation or whatever but um and I, and I do think that you know a lot of the Money is just rushing around, you know, with their with their uh, solution, looking for a problem, right, that they can solve with it. And again, like you said, someone will do it, but for most companies, I think it can be a distraction. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I think the last thing I would leave our listeners with is if, if you are thinking about doing it, and again, like, happy to help. I think this is one of those times when you really do need some help, frankly. <laughs> you don't really want to charter too far into these waters without a guide to help. It's just too easy to make a mistake. Even for people who'd spend their lives thinking about this, they obviously make mistakes. We can go back in the history and see lots of mistakes. The thing I'd leave you with, though, is 
This is, and this is a quote from Antonopoulos again. He, he says, Bitcoin is not smooth jazz. It's not, it's not going to easily transition from one thing to the next. It's much more like punk rock. And to the point, you know, I think that the people who are successful here are the ones who are going to make some noise in, in both the positive and, frankly, the negative way, too. I think people who figure out something new here are just not going to care about the perception. They're just not going to care about the regulation. And that's what's, frankly, going to make them successful to some degree. And I think for most CIOs, certainly at large corporations, that's probably not the posture that they want to adopt. It's just too early for them to go too far into it, given all of that, given that, again, back to the point earlier, this is really, you know, this is the, this is effectively the dark web of the internet. It is, it is raw, it is unvarnished, unpolished. And frankly, it doesn't care if you like it or not. It doesn't care if the transaction is what you meant it to mean. It doesn't care if the ethics are aligned with what you believe, if it goes to criminals or other terrible things. It doesn't care. It just, it is what it is. It's a machine. And it's how we ultimately leverage that that's going to make a difference. And so I just caution is my, is my big advice to people. Right, I'd agree. So with that, again, thank you. I know this was a longer one. I appreciate you sticking around and listening. I hope it was helpful. I hope it added some clarity and gives you a sense of if this is something for you or not. If you have other thoughts, other questions, feel free to reach out to us. If you want to hear other podcasts like this or articles we've written like this, feel free to visit us at the Insights page at Cordero.com. Thank you, Jason. <laughs>